Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today's topic is preventing and reversing Alzheimer's disease. Is this possible? Is it too good to be true? My guest today is one of the most foremost experts in this area, Dr. Mary Kay Ross. Dr. Ross took an unusual path to becoming one of the most respected clinical holistic doctors in treating Alzheimer's disease. She originally trained in emergency medicine, caring for adults and pediatric patients at level one trauma centers. Those are the type of places where gunshot wounds, stabbings, you know, occur on a daily basis. You see the worst of the worst in medicine. She then, as she'll tell us in her story, became seriously ill herself due to a mold exposure and began on a journey to find ways to heal herself. This led her to studying and uh, practicing functional holistic medicine. In 2012, she founded the Institute of Personalized Medicine in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, later on in 2016, she teamed up with Dr. Dale Bredesen, and that's going to be a big focus of the uh, the podcast today, who is a clinical and researcher in neurology out in California. And Dr. Bredesen has done some of the most groundbreaking work on showing how to prevent and reverse Alzheimer's disease. As of this September, uh, Dr. Ross moved out to Seattle, where she is now part of the Brain and Health Research Institute that is combining research and clinical laboratory and clinical medicine to bring direct benefits to patients with Alzheimer's and neurogenitive diseases. For our listeners, I cannot think of, if you have a loved one that has Alzheimer's or people that you know, listening to this podcast may be one of the most important things uh, you'll ever hear. So with that introduction, welcome Dr. Mary Kay Ross to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Mitchell. Um, it's an honor to be here. This, as you know, is a big passion for me. So I am ready to talk about this. I'm very excited to uh, share all of the information. I get excited with these podcasts because for me, it's like a whole learning situation, but I was like super excited to start asking these questions and, and hearing your thoughts. So we'll, we'll first jump in with one thing too, because I think sometimes it, people do like to know, how did a doctor get interested in a certain area of medicine? And if you wouldn't mind, I gave a brief introduction, but a little bit about your journey, how you, again, you started in very conventional medicine, ER medicine, which is where, you know, it's very exciting, but very much much, you know, mainstream medicine, and then transitioned over time to functional medicine. And you mentioned with a, your own personal health issue. Do you mind, you know, just telling us about that a bit? Sure. No, I'd be happy to. So you're right. I was an emergency medicine doctor, worked very uh, actively in trauma centers, and I taught medical students, residents, and really enjoyed teaching. That was a big part of what I did. I was on faculty at EVMS Medical School in Virginia. And I found that I, in the emergency room, I noted that a lot of people are frequent flyers is what we would call them. You know, they would come in with their big bag of drugs and many different doctors' names. And I felt like um, I started to realize that we really aren't doing much for chronic illnesses. It seems like they just don't get better. They just continue on and on and on. And so that was sort of my first aha moment, if you will. 
And then we were in Savannah, Georgia, and um, I was teaching there and working in the emergency room there and one of the senior partners, and I started getting sick. And I didn't realize it took me several years really to get an idea of what was going on. But what I noticed is that I developed um, overnight, it seemed like, an arthritis. And, you know, being a physician, I would do my own workup. So I, I sort of did the whole rheumatological workup and everything was negative. Um, I had an MRI done and my friend, the radiologist said, wow, you know, Mary Kay, I think you've got um, a big problem here. You need to go and see a rheumatologist. And I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, just out of the blue. I had developed asthma and was using an inhaler all the time. I had sort of chronic bronchitis, pneumonia, always on antibiotics, always taking steroids and just couldn't ever really seem to kick it. I developed insomnia. I honestly don't think I slept for two years. I was crazy, coughing all the time, wheezing all the time. And then I developed thyroid nodules and had autoimmune thyroid disease. And so I really felt like I was just falling apart, as you can imagine. (laughs) I thought about going on disability. I mean, it was very severe. And then it slowly started to sort of register with me that at the same time all of this had occurred, we had had a leak in our home Hmm. and we did what just normal lay people would do. And you sort of call the insurance company. They send a guy in to fix your leak. And we assumed everything was done properly. And it was about eight months later that our ceiling caved in in our living room. And it was the same leak. And so that was sort of a, a moment where I went, wow, I wonder if this has anything to do with my illness, because that was my eight months of just absolutely falling apart. Then I had a really crazy experience. I was giving grand rounds at the hospital and I started having chest pain. And, you know, I had had, you know, being more into, I want to say, I don't really hate the word anti-aging medicine, but it really is. No, I don't like it either. Yeah, I don't, I'm not crazy about that term. But I don't know what you want to call it, but maybe being preventative. Right. Because I really wasn't, I didn't know anything about functional medicine yet. Right, right. And I had had a calcium scoring CT scan because there's a lot of uh, cardiac history in my family. And that was completely zero. Hmm. So then I started having chest pain. I thought, oh my goodness, what's going on? And I ended up going to the cath lab. It was, it was quite an oh, experience. Wow. Sometimes being a doctor is dangerous. You have too much access to <laughs> excellent care. You know, anybody that knows me, I'm not like the person right. to run to the emergency room. That yeah. is so not me. Right. And um, <laughs> so anyhow, I developed something called Taco Subo. Have you ever heard of that? No, no. What is that? (laughs) So it's Japanese for octopus pot. And that's the shape your heart takes when you have it. So the whole left ventricle kind of flaps in the breeze and just isn't working well. And it's something that people, you know, it's a cause of sudden death. It's also most people that come in are in congestive heart failure when they have it and very, very sick. So, I really wasn't. I wasn't having any trouble breathing, but I was tachycardic and my troponin was slightly bumped. And um, when I remember vaguely, I tried so hard to stay awake in the kappa, but I remember the cardiologist saying to me, you know, Mary Kay, if you're going to have something cardiac, this is the thing to have. But it's stress-induced cardiomyopathy. And they believe that whatever made me so sick, my cortisol level was absolutely off the charts. So when your body makes excess cortisol, it's making excess adrenaline, right? Right. 
And they think that that is what bumped my heart into um, Taco Subo. Wow. So I was spent that week in the hospital on a monitored bed because the danger is deadly arrhythmia. And there's nothing you can do for it. It reverses on its own or not. Mine did completely reverse. So that started my journey. It was like a huge moment in my life when I was like, wow, you know, I'm going to die if I don't figure out what this is all about. And so I did a lot of testing, a ton of training. Um, I went through the two-year training program at IFM in two years while I was still running a practice full-time. And then I've trained all over. I've trained with mold specialists throughout the country and uh, been to many different conferences. I made it my point to train with ILADS and learn more about Lyme disease and more of the chronic illnesses, honestly, that, that I think in medicine, there's a lot of question. And I think a lot of the question is because we just don't know. Yeah, and uh, and I also went to a doctor in New York, and and she was amazing for me, an infectious disease person who is also uh, a mold specialist. It's something a little bit similar to what I did in my career. Actually, my wife and I did also. We have a practice in New York. I traveled around the country. Fortunately, times when I was well, and other times maybe I wasn't, wasn't so well, to learn, as you were saying, to learn, you know, what the the toxic mold people have to say, what the Lyme people have, because sometimes they each have their own little perspective. And if you gather it in and realize that a lot of these different things are in play, uh, and that really leads me to my next question. How did you connect with Dr. Bredesen, who obviously really tremendous uh, person in the the field now of, you know, Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. How did you hook up with him, if you don't mind me asking? No, I don't mind at all. It's a great story, actually. I was in my office in Savannah, Georgia, and at this point, I had become pretty adept at treating Lyme disease and mold and and chronic illnesses and things of toxicity, sort of. I was watching Dale Bredesen uh, give grand rounds at Cleveland Clinic. And what fascinated me, I mean, just absolutely hooked me, was when he was talking about inhalational Alzheimer's. Inhalational Alzheimer's. Wow. Yes. Yeah. And what he's talking about, honestly, he's talking about very small particles, nanoparticles that you can inhale that can reach the brain, actually. And, And he believes it's a big driver for Alzheimer's. And this can be mold and this can be pollution. So I thought this was fascinating. And I literally, my husband works in my practice with me and I ran back and said, oh my gosh, you know, I just saw this great physician and I so want to work with him. And he's like, oh great, Mary Kay, who is it? And I told him and he goes, well, you know, he's a He is a uh, neurologist and you're not. And um He's in California and you're in Savannah, so it's probably not going to work out. Right. How's that going to work out? (laughs) Two days later, yeah, we started sharing a patient. Wow. And um, we've never looked back. So um, Dale actually invited me to come out and train with him at the Buck Institute, and I did. And then he asked me if I would be his chief medical officer. Wow. So I obviously took that position, and... um, I don't, I've never really stopped. I mean, that's sort of been what, what my, uh, would spawn me into the cognitive realm, if you will. That's fascinating. And it just shows you what I, what I really love about it too. And I, again, I try to do my own career is that to not box a doctor in just because you, you know, so many people like, what's your specialty? What do you do? You know, and, and also just because you did one thing doesn't mean you can't evolve and bring whatever you learned before 
into another whole arena. And, and also doctors working together. It's something I talked about with Dr. Lisa Sanders on a prior podcast. I said, when doctors work together, they can bring the best of, that everybody has to offer. And obviously it's the best for the patients. But I'm going to start to dive in now on the Alzheimer issues. And a lot of it's from Dr. Bredesen's book and your work. And I thought you'd be one of the best people to talk about it. So can you briefly mention, because I don't think the public is really aware of this, the different types of dementia? Because most people, they think, about, oh, he's got... Alzheimer's, I mean, you can't remember anything. But in fact, that's not, you know, there's several different types. There are different types of dementia, and then there's different types of categories of Alzheimer's as well. Mm -hmm. And so for dementia, Alzheimer's is one of the most common forms of dementia. But we have Lewy body dementia. Uh, We can have uh, Parkinson's, which can be a form of dementia, frontotemporal dementia, so there's many different kinds. And and what Dr. Bredesen is, I don't know if you were asking me about his types or... No, well, no, no, not up to that yet. I want to just, I want to just talk about in general, because as I said, the, the typical person, in, in I, and I think the misperception for the public is, oh, that person is Alzheimer's. They can't remember their name. They don't know where they are. That's obviously a very severe right. case, a severe form. But there are other, as you started to mention, there's, a, I know someone who has Lewy body uh, dementia. And I mean, it's, it's tragic. And um, he can do a lot of things. He knows his name. He knows everything. But he's just so slow in mentation and doing things. And, and you started to touch on the frontotemporal, which, again, we, you know, we'll talk about a little more depth, it has other symptoms. It's not it's so much memory, sometimes it's personality, right? Where they can get very angry and and eruptive. And and people don't realize this because as, you know, Dr. Bredesen mentions, it's well known that a lot of these symptoms develop over 15 or 20 years. It's not like, you know, you wake up one day and you just don't remember or you're angry all the time, correct? That's absolutely right. It happens, we think it happens quite um, at least a decade before and sometimes 15 years and nobody notices it. Um, so it's, there's a huge um, education that needs to go on with this because we really believe now that we can do things to help it. And the earlier, the better yeah. is the key. And, and you also, just so we can explain this to, to the listeners too, Dr. Bresson talks about this cognitive impairment versus mild cognitive impairment. Can you give sort of a brief differentiation yeah, so, of how you then? So we believe that this is a continuum. Okay. So if you can imagine just like anything else, you're perking along and you're getting older and life is happening to you. So something starts, let's say it's 10 years prior and you don't really recognize it. Um, nobody else does. That's the beginning. Okay. And then suddenly you might notice just individually, subjectively that I'm having trouble finding my words. Um, maybe you're a person who speaks publicly and you get up and you notice that you have to come up with other words to take the place of the words that you wanted to say. And then maybe you notice that that happens more and more frequently. Perhaps you have trouble remembering names and you were always a great name person. And you know what, Ronald, I remember reading about this, you know, unfortunately, probably Ronald Reagan had Alzheimer's at the beginning of it in his presidency because you know what he used to do sometimes? He'd be doing a speech. And he forgot, uh, I guess, wherever he was talking about, and he would insert lines from a movie that he had been in, you know, decades before. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yep. yeah, so that's why sometimes something weird or subtle kind of gets in there. I'm, I'm sorry. I just wanted to, I love, I love no, the listeners really, you know, important. appreciate, you know, again, the subtles to the, of this. And, uh, and maybe you can mention too, as you're talking about, just like, again, I, I'll just throw out a couple of things where like people forget sometimes they, people have decreased vocabulary, right? Or they 
get poor, you know, they get anxiety very easily, you know, but again, we also, we want to be careful because, you know, a lot of these symptoms we all get and we don't want to think, oh my God, um, this is, you know, I'm going down the Alzheimer's path. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, we don't want to create unnecessary fear or anxiety, but I will tell you, this is really and truly my belief. um, This is a continuum and it does start very subtly. And the the scary thing is this, we've created a sort of an attitude toward this in, a, in our world um, and definitely in our country where we feel like we can't do anything about it. Right. And so, you know, if you're a family member and somebody gets nervous about something, what do you, you want to make them feel better. So your response is usually don't, Oh no, no, no. You're under so much stress. Right. Don't worry right. about that. Right. And then from a patient perspective, it's embarrassing. You know, like I was this brilliant person and I always spoke publicly and suddenly I can't remember my words. This is embarrassing. It's somehow they think of it being related to intelligence, which it's not. And so they suppress it. So if everybody hides this and nobody talks about it, suddenly when it raises its ugly head, you've got a big problem. And uh, the doctor's also think, you know, traditionally, we know from a, a traditional medicine standpoint, there is nothing much that we can do for it right now. We've had over 400 failed drug trials, and we can give Namenda, we can give Aricep, and usually it's a pat on the back and see you in six months, get your affairs in order. So doctors don't want to jump the gun either and say, oh, yeah, you're 40 years old or 45 and you have trouble finding your words. They always poo-poo it and and calm people down and make them feel better. But what this does is it makes it sort of the taboo thing to talk about. Does that make sense? Oh, that's a great point. And it really leads me right into the next thing, why Dr. Bredesen and your work is so important. Because Dr. Bredesen made a very bold statement, which in his book, it's interesting how the conventional neurologist and everybody basically literally attacked him when he said Alzheimer's disease is not a single disease. It's actually, you know, again, in his book, he talks about the 36 holes and all the mechanisms, but basically Mm -hmm. he says this three, I want you to explain to the listeners. He explains to make it, you know, basically there are three main types. Would you mind explaining those different types for the listeners so they understand? No, I'd be be happy to. And I I do want to take just one moment and say, I absolutely believe that this, there are many roads to this disease. Yeah. So the disease can be the end road and you get there many different ways. Good point. So what he's done is he's categorized patients into different types. So you have type one, which is inflammatory. And when you think about it, we start looking at inflammatory markers. It can be a part of many, though, types because lots of things cause inflammation. And then you have 1.5, which is actually glycotoxicity. So then you're having uh, insulin resistance and high hemoglobin A1C and high glucose. And this is very much toxic to the brain. And we often call it type 3 diabetes, you know, um, diabetes of the brain, if you will. And then there's type 2, which is trophic, which means trophic means anything supportive of the brain like hormones. So we look at your sex hormones, we look at your thyroid, and we do look at it a little differently than traditional docs. So we're... Um, right. You know, we have different levels that we look at. Yeah, and no, I agree cortisol, with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The stress hormone. So that's, that's type two. And then type three is toxic. 
And, and honestly, that's what I specialize in. And we're looking at biotoxins, which are Lyme, mold disease, and there's many other biotoxins, but those are the two most common we come in contact with. We're looking at heavy metals. We're looking at infections. We're looking at viruses, which we think are huge in this disease today. Mm. Um, that's really some of the newer research coming out is showing that. So, you know, we're also looking at chemotoxins. We know that that's a big factor. And all of these can be cumulative. I view people as bathtubs. You know, we start out with this this cute little shiny tub that drains really well. And as you go through life, you start layering things in your tub. And your drain really is analogous to your DNA and your ability to detox and remove bad things. And so once our tub gets full, it tips over and we get sick. And uh, I think that's a big part of what happens to us in a very simplified way. No, I I like that description. You know, one of the things that I tell patients also, because I I essentially practice holistic functional medicine in New York, that the kind of labs that functional medicine doctors looking at are really slightly different than the typical internist. And I I really wish that essentially from the kind of work Dr. Bredesen's done, uh, other doctors too in this area are showing that they're so important because they do have to do with inflammation and and your sugar control. Like uh, I'll just mention briefly, but then I'm going to ask you my key question. Like, you know, in in type one, which you mentioned was inflammatory. I mean, Dr. Bredesen, and I'm sure yourself and myself, like, you know, things like C-reactive protein, which your doctors do check for, but don't always you know, realize how important it is. And as you mentioned, fasting glucose and hemoglobin A1C, which people tend to associate with diabetes, but really has to do with numerous aging diseases, including Alzheimer's. And he also mentions a couple other things too, something called interleukin-6 and tumor necrosis factor, which people might be familiar with, which are sometimes with rheumatological diseases because they are essentially inflammatory markers. And again, I think too many patients are not getting these things checked. And as you just mentioned, also in type 2 form of Alzheimer's, but where you worry about hormone levels. And again, as you mentioned, Dr. Ross, you know, thyroid, looking not just at the TSH, which again, a lot of internists look at, but looking at the actual free T3, looking at autoantibodies, you know, like thyroperoxidase and, uh, and reverse T3, which again, for a long time, our endocrinology colleagues have said is not important, but we know really now when your body's sort of going into hibernation or, you know, shutdown, this start, the ratio starts to go off and, and and as you mentioned, the sex hormones. And the other thing, too, is also homocysteine, which is uh, overlooked a lot. You know, and, you know, now they look at it for cardiac reasons. But again, it has to be doing, you know, with your circulation and your inflammation. And, and, the, and the last thing was what you just mentioned, the mycotoxins, which I just started measuring in the urine. It's kind of hard to do in New York, but it's really important. I can't believe how many patients are testing positive, you know, that have like what you had in your own home where they have a, uh, uh, they have a flood or they have a break in the ceiling and behind that, all that water damage, you know, are these dangerous mycotoxins. But my question now to you, the big question is genetic testing. I mean, unfortunately everybody's going for 23 and me to find out where they came from. But again, some of these tests can reveal what's called the APOE4 and APOE3 testing. Can you explain about this, which can make you more predisposed to developing Alzheimer's? What's your, your feeling on if people should be tested at what age? Because I'm also very careful with genetic testing. Unless there's something we can do about it, it tends to put a, you know, uh, like a sword hanging over somebody's head. So what's your, your thoughts on that? 
Well, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I do not think that you necessarily, your genes are, are your uh, future. Are your but destiny. I, I mm-hmm. think that your destiny, but I think that you do need to know. I think knowledge is, is key. And I think knowing your FOE status is so important. I do also, though, counsel people to make sure that, that if they want long-term care insurance, maybe we do it through a different mechanism so that that uh, information is not available in public. What's the different mechanism, if you may ask? Well, you know, there are labs that you can purchase online, and, and they're not through your insurance. Life extension is one of them. Okay, that's, a good, that's really important to know, yeah. Yeah, so we do, we recommend that. Is that anonymous, like where you don't, where you just give a code or something, or you have to still give your name? I'm just curious. Well, you you give your name, but you're paying out of pocket, okay. and it's, it's a private company, and they don't work with the insurance company. That is I mean, so critical. Completely- I don't think patients realize that, and the public realize how much of our information that, you know, like I know, again, with this DNA testing, they could use it to help confirm that you did a crime. I mean, let alone not getting insurance or long-term care insurance. This is devastating. So what you just said may be one of the most important things, because if somebody's worried about being, you know, are they at higher risk for Alzheimer's? Should they get genetic testing? And they just go and they do it through their doctor's office and, and, and do, the, do they want it to be covered with their insurance? Now they won't be able to, you know, a lot of other things, doors could close. So this was really That's important. Exactly right. Really important. I think it's very important. Yeah, you know, I just learned something. It's super important. Yeah. Yeah. So the APOE is very important. Um, it is definitely uh, gives you an increased risk for Alzheimer's. So if you have we have two, it's, it's written like a fraction. So it's, there's two copies and it's either a three, a four, or a two. And so it can be a three, three, which is the most common. And that has no increased risk, just average risk for Alzheimer's. But if you are a three, four, you can have up to 30% increased risk, one copy. And if you're a 4-4? 4-4, four, four? Four, four, it can be up to 90. That's scary, right? So yeah. when we look at that, I want to—I just want to say one thing. This is a very old gene. Yep. So if you're looking at the evolution of man, that's a gene that was very, very positive and successful for uh, man as he was evolving in the caveman days. And uh, so you go back and you look at what was different then and a lot of things, but one of the big ones is diet. Right. And so they fasted, they had to forage for things and hide. Right. Right. And so food wasn't as prevalent, right? And we find these patients do really well with fasting, intermittent fasting and ketosis. So diet is a big part of our program. Yeah, we're going to be talking about it in depth. That's a great point. So again, anyone who's listening, and if you were tested positive, let's say double E4 or whatever too, game's not over. You know, there's, again, the kind of work that Dr. Bredesen has done with research and Dr. Ross is doing in practice and a more functional medicine doctors are doing, you can do something about all this in not only preventing, which is obviously incredibly important, and even, you know, in reversing, you know, again, in his case reports and people who had, were already getting memory loss, were getting that back and, and just functioning at a much higher level. The testing that was done on them, that Montreal cognitive testing, their scores were improving. So that's what I want the listeners to realize why this podcast is so important. Because myself, too, until I really delved in learning all this, this was an area that was foreign to me. I was really lucky there was just a patient of mine that had a relative with this and, and told me about you, Dr. Ross. And I'm like, this work is going on. This is incredible. But to safely be able to be tested so that you don't have to worry any ramifications, that also, you know, is critically important. 
Let me ask you too about then the next step imaging techniques. MRIs, PET scans. Like, you know, whenever I see a research paper, it looks like it's always a PET scan with those beautiful colors showing, you know, yellow or orange where there's, you know, poor uptake. MRIs, obviously, you know, you see changes in the, uh, the space in what we call the ventricles. What is your opinion about what testing patients should have for this? Baseline should, um, you know, if somebody is diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's, should they have an MRI or a PET scan? What do you suggest? I suggest, honestly, for my purposes, uh, to be able to really track progress is an MRI. And we apply a volumetric program called NeuroReader to the MRI. And it looks at 45 different structures. And it gives me volume in all of those structures. And it also looks at the right versus the left uh, versus the total. And so we can actually see patterns that are evolving and um, we can see when they reverse, which is fantastic. Well, so let me ask you this. Um, so a typical MRI yeah. will not show that you have to have the special reader program, neuro reader program to get those kind of measurements. That's correct. And and the truth is though, you don't have to have it. So it's, here's the deal. It just has to be ordered properly. So we have to have the proper size slices to be able to apply the neuro reader uh, program. So that the key is to having it ordered properly. We actually have a company that helps us with this and they do all of the quality assurance and make sure that it gets done. And they actually uh, will call the patient, find out what their insurance is, make sure the insurance covers the MRI. And then there's a nominal charge for the uh, neuro reader. And uh, that gives me the information. Well, so let I me need. ask you this, it's, though. It's very a, important. A patient that yeah. doesn't know about this, the doctor orders an MRI for whatever reason. Let's say they're in their 60s or 70s. You know, maybe they fell, they hit their head. Doctor orders an MRI. Will a, a typical MRI pick up clear-cut Alzheimer's and early-onset Alzheimer's? I mean, can it miss it, you know, a decent amount no. of time? No. It should, it should pick it up. Yeah. So the PET scan, why are they using the PET scan? The one that shows, the, you, know, you know, this tag with the radioactive dye. Right. Why is that used? So the PET scan's definitive. That's more definitive. That's more definitive. Um, because it actually can show the amyloid. No, oh, that's um, right. I want to get to that. Right. And, okay. Yes. Yeah. That shows so where that's, the amyloid that's is being the passive. But yeah. it's not covered by insurance is the difference. Right. I know. Yeah. I, I know this becomes the whole issue in practicing medicine. Like, do you do the best test? And obviously it's such a critical thing, you know, or do you, you know, not. You know, I want to mention about the amyloid, which is really fascinating because I think, you know, again, people may have heard of this. I know doctors know about it, but it's so interesting how Dr. Bredesen brings this up that, you know, amyloid, when we see it, we think, oh no, that's, you know, the, you know, the kiss of death for Alzheimer's patients, you know, these deposits, not realizing that the amyloid, first of all, doesn't always indicate that somebody is going to develop Alzheimer's and that the amyloid, as he mentioned, it's so interesting because in my background in immunology also, I, I, I see this all the time, that the amyloid is actually a protective mechanism so it's really something else is stimulating the brain cells to produce the amyloid. Uh, and, and obviously in your work and his work about infections, toxins. So the amyloid is sort of uh, an over-response to the, um, the insult, right. right? I mean, that's what it's so important because I know the reason going back to so many drugs have failed, they've tried to just decrease the amyloid and that doesn't seem to be working. And that's why Dr. Bresson. No, you're absolutely right. right. Yeah. yeah. And so amyloid is, is your body's making it to protect itself. So think about this. Let's say it's an infection or an exposure you're having that's still ongoing. And right. they give you a drug 
to reduce what your body's trying to create to help you. Right. We haven't done anything to change the underlying problem. And that's why the drugs fail, we believe. Um, It's not going to be a monotherapy that cures this illness. When we talk about the different types of Alzheimer's, you know, we're really looking at the 36 holes in the roof. So when I get these patients, I'm looking at, I'm fixing everything. Right. This is why I think right. it's so You need a general contractor. Really don't. You don't need a specialist who's just going to plug one hole. You need a good general contractor who's going to say, look, why is this roof leaking in 36 spots? As, you know, and, That's and, right. You know, it's funny. Dr. Bredesen said when he was like, talking to one of his colleagues, they said, you know, and he mentioned his theory and what he's been finding in research. They said, no, no, no. Come back to me when you have one mechanism, you know, or one pill. That's all I'm interested in. And that was kind of sad. You know, I mean, it, it is a little bit the way medicine sometimes works. And gosh, I love that quote that he had in the last uh, chapter of his book. He had a couple of quotes, but one of them was by Matt, Dr. Max Planck, who's a special like PhD specialist in Germany uh, who discovered all kinds of amazing physics things. But he said, science advances one funeral at a time. <laughs> and it's kind of really sad, you know, I mean, till the dogma true. or whatever, this was established, you know, till the next generation can break through with new ideas. It's sad because it makes sense. I want to go back to the diet too, because I think these are the things that will be very practical for patients to start finding out for themselves and something too. what the best diet is for somebody who's had, who has Alzheimer's or if they're at high risk. And he mentions in the book, the keto 12 slash three. Could you, could you explain that a little bit? Sure. So, um, first of all, if you look up ketogenic diet online, it's that's the wrong diet. That is going to be a diet high in lots of fats, but not necessarily the good ones. Interesting. Okay. So, what we're looking for, we know that ketones are the best fuel for the brain, and the brain is a very mitochondrial-rich uh, real estate, and so that the ketones really help heal a brain. So when we do a ketogenic diet, basically what we're doing is we're getting rid of all processed foods. We're getting rid of simple sugars. We are getting rid of all grains and we're getting rid of dairy. So we're removing foods that are inflammatory and we're removing foods that are starchy and going to keep your blood sugar elevated, which will obviously keep you away from developing ketosis. I've been doing this work for a long time too, because I see a lot of chronic candidate patients, but I was just always curious to what dairy, they say that pokes holes or causes leaky gut. Uh, do you, does anybody understand the mechanism of that? I was just always curious, or is it just because it's so processed? I'm not honestly convinced that absolutely everybody has to give yeah. up dairy, but yeah. I think that it is an inflammatory mechanism that causes the the microscopic perforations in the gut. Yeah. I kind of modify the diet for people sure, um, depending sure. on who they are. If I get somebody, for instance, I was from Georgia, so if you're oh, trying boy. everything and yeah. you're doing all these horrible things, if you if a piece of cheese will silence you and make you happy, I'm going to allow that. <laughs> I like you know? that. <laughs> we'll get rid of the fried chicken and the biscuit. Yeah. <laughs> and also when you say grains, you know, we, we know that gluten, I mean, this has been really well shown in celiac, but in other people too, that obviously gluten seems to be cause leaky gut, but other grains as well too. Because um, it's interesting. I always tell patients, you know, when I say to them sometimes too, you know, you want to eat like the biblical diet, like basically like you just said, non-processed foods. If they didn't have it in biblical times, 
you're probably better off not having it. But they did have grains back then. I mean, they had all these interesting kind of grains. And, and even I've, I've heard the wheat was different. So um, It was you, different. Right? Yeah. So it's just, it's just so processed now. Is that essentially the, probably the problem? I think it's processed, and we've changed it genetically so that it yeah. can feed more people, that it's more you know, drought-resistant and yeah. um, disease-resistant. And so you're changing the, the properties of the food. Yeah. And we also, grains, and especially in America, have a lot of mycotoxins. Interesting. Um, okay. And that's a big problem with the animal food, you know, and right. that's been studied more than humans. Right. I do change the diet. So what I've discovered is, and, and Dale would agree with this, because, you know, he wrote his book quite a while ago, and now things are always changing. Of course, you want to we, update We it. realize that a lot of people, especially, you know, kind of the, the smaller framed women, when they get on this diet, some of them just get the dwindles, and they seem to lose too much weight. Right, right. They become sarcopenia. And so we have to really be careful with it. Good point. Really good point. Yeah. We also realize that we need a higher ketone level. So the book, I think, says 0.5 to 4. And we now say 1.5 to 4. And we know a big, the sweet spot's around 1.5. And that's when we really notice. Maybe, actually, can difference. you explain to the listeners, too? Because you're saying there's actually a way you can check your ketones, right? Is, is that through like a, a little finger stick or something? Or is that with a... That's uh, it. Yeah. There's a meter. So yeah. you get a ketone and glucose meter. Mm-hmm. And um, you can look at your glucose as well. And I really have people track this in the beginning. And we have a dietitian nutritionist that works one-on-one with our patients. Um, we also have a chef. So our oh, program, wow. we have people come and learn how to wow. make this transition. They spend several days with us in the beginning. There's no app for this yet, is there? <laughs> <laughs> no. There will be. There will be. You know, that the next move is like, I, I, you know, it's so funny. I, I have to just tell the listeners, I have this slide that I'm doing in one of the talks that I'm giving, and it's the cover of the New Yorker last week. It was very interesting. It, it, first, it shows a picture of a room where you see this giant-sized computer, which People can barely remember. I remember when I was in college, the computers were the size of a full room. Then the next, you know, part of the uh, the cover shows like another uh, shows the laptop, right? And then the final right. one shows the person, you know, with something coming out of him being plugged into the wall. So pretty soon, <laughs> uh, right? It's cute. It's a cute cover. You should see it. It's like you know, like yeah, that's going to happen. Um, let's talk about happen. yeah. Let's talk about a couple more things on the keto diet. What I'm interested too. First of all, MCT oil, which I have never taken. I was always a little concerned about because of of cording cardiovascular disease, but you, I think Dr. Bredesen mentions and people are saying, you know, to, it is good to use on a keto diet because what is it decreases sugar cravings, but is it, is it cause cardiac inflammation at all or not too much? Well, what it does actually MCT oil, medium chain triglyceride oil, um, it's a saturated fat. So from that perspective, you worry about the cardiovascular, right. but in the beginning, it actually really helps the brain. Our brain you know, think about our membranes, our cellular membranes and our brain, you know, it's right. the majority of it is fat. And and so most of us, especially if you look back over the years and years of thought that uh, fat-free diets and we need to watch our calories and sugar-free. And so a lot of brains are starving. And when they're, when they're damaged and having problems, then they really need it. And so um, we start everybody with MCT oil. And then over time, especially APOE4s, we decrease it. Okay. And we decrease it when we see the results are coming. I do keep up with their cholesterol and I look at the NMR and look at the small dense lipoprotein particle number to make sure that that's not getting out of control. But, uh, 
Yeah, I wanted to mention about cholesterol too. It's so important and fascinating in his book. And I, I remember it's really interesting. Like years ago, they were saying, you know, obviously we're also worried about having too high cholesterol, but there's a danger in having a very, very low cholesterol. I don't want to get people panicky because right. you know, it get people crazy. But he mentions, you know, I remember years ago in some of the studies, they, they, for some reason it seemed like there was a higher suicide rate with people who had very, very low cholesterol or they were in accidents. It, it was very strange. But but now in the book, he's saying it's a concern to him if somebody has a cholesterol below like 150, right? That's, you know, and then basically right. you're saying the membranes right. don't have enough cholesterol because that's what makes up our cellular membranes. Triglycerides as well. Yeah. yeah. So we'll often see in a type three patient, very low triglycerides, and that's a worry. We really, worry about that. Really, if it's very low. Interesting. You, know, you see, sometimes even too low can be uh, a negative. He also mentions in the book, it's interesting, bone broth, which has become a big hit here in New York in our uh, cold winters. Oh, yeah. Uh, you find that to be something good? You think that helps heal the gut and is a key part? Well, you know, it's funny. Right before I met Dr. Bredesen, I used to have a cooler in my waiting room selling grass-fed bones really? so that people yeah. would come and I'd send them home with the recipe mm. and, and the bones oh, because wow. it definitely heals. And the great thing about it is you're not trying to take all these medications and supplements to heal your gut. You're using food as medicine and it works. It works Ooh, great. That just reminded me too, I'm sorry, I'm going to jump around sometimes, but sometimes you bring up a really important point. Too. You know, again, and I remember when I first heard this, I was like, it just, again, it's like one of those things in medicine that turned me on my head, that statins that we have to worry that they can actually worsen brain function or uh, predispose somebody to Alzheimer's disease. So what do you tell somebody that has high cholesterol, has maybe ApoE4, two copies, or even just one copy? Do you recommend a lot of times to try to find ways to not use statins to lower cholesterol? I do. I do. But remember, I always do an advanced lipid profile. Okay. And, and you know, having trained in functional medicine, there are many other ways to help lower small dense particle numbers. And if they really do the diet properly, it all seems to get better. It corrects itself. Um, I know I've but, seen that with patients too, right? When we, when we have them following yeah. this program, it's just amazing. They lose weight in all the right places. And yeah, and their numbers start to look... You know, the cholesterol, it's amazing. The cholesterol comes out because people don't realize, unfortunately, I mean, they're starting to realize how bad sugar was. And and we were all taken in by, unfortunately, the food industry because back in the, I guess it was the 80s from what I remember, you know, maybe your 90s, you know, it was all about low fat, low fat, low fat. And they just put every, sugar into all of these processed foods. And, you know, we caused an epidemic of, of issues for people. We really did. We yeah. were looking for convenience too. Exactly. With these processes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And it yeah. backfired on us. Yeah. Well, what was I read somewhere too? You know, if, if like, you know, the, if, if like when you go to the supermarket and you buy something, if the, you know, if the shelf life looks like indefinite, that means it's not a good thing. <laughs> problem, yeah. Things exactly should go bad right. after a couple of days. Okay, let's talk about sleep with Alzheimer's or, you know, again, with these issues. You know, most of the books I obviously always put out, it's good to get eight hours of sleep. But, you know, some people function, seem to function well on five hours of sleep. Some other people say, look, I have, you know, it's funny. There's a ball player, um, one of the top pitchers on the Houston Astros, Justin Verlander, who swears that if he gets 12, 10 or 12 hours of sleep, he, he's been playing at a higher level than he ever has. So what is the issue with sleep? Is it how much? Does it depend if you're interrupted, you know, like going to the bathroom or getting hungry? What, what's your take on that? We feel that the perfect sleep would be going to bed at 10 o'clock and sleeping through the night and getting up eight hours later. Okay. I mean, that is perfect. Okay. Um, and 
Now I'm having patients use tracking devices to look at it. Um, we're starting to look at using an aura ring, actually, in our practice. Aura ring, what is that? we measure the amount of uh, REM sleep oh, wow. that you okay. have, which okay. is, I think, really important. But sleep is important. And as we age, we don't get as good a sleep as we did when we were younger. And there's a lot of things that affect it. So we want to know, do you have sleep apnea? You know, that's one of the big issues. And so we really do test every patient for that, look at that very closely. Um, and that is definitely related to Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. Well, let's see, like we just mentioned, I mean, it's not uncommon for elderly people, you know, whatever we, do, whatever we call that, you know, age, that they say, oh, I'm not sleep. I, I know I'm not sleeping as soundly or I have trouble falling asleep, you know, and again, not anxiety issues. So, but again, probably their melatonin is decreasing like every other hormone as we age. So do you think it's really important for those patients to be on a dose of uh, melatonin to make sure I they- recommend they can try it? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And you know, you can test for your melatonin levels. Right. I don't right. always do that, yeah. but yes, I think trying it is reasonable. Okay. Absolutely. So, okay. So you're, you're basically saying you're tracking people's sleep. You want them to get the good eight to 10 hours. Question two, I, I was just curious, has there been shown any higher risk of people that we know they have more illnesses, but is there supposedly an increased risk in Alzheimer's people that are what we call like reverse workers and you know, people who work, you know, midnight shifts all the time for years? Is there, I was just curious, is there any studies? Absolutely. There is. There yeah. is. Yeah. There, there, there is a correlation. Yeah. So, with many things, as you know, right. immune system, other illnesses, and cognition, absolutely. And the and the best drug, what I'm hearing for Alzheimer's is exercise. Do, is there something that you recommend as far as trying to keep the cardiovascular circulation good? I mean, is there a certain amount three times a week, five times a week? I mean, what do you tell your patients? So if I have a patient that has Alzheimer's um, or significant cognitive decline with other dementias, I absolutely have them evaluated by our exercise physiologist, and then I put them on a program. And obviously, everybody starts somewhere, so some people aren't quite there where they can go and do a HIIT program. But high, uh, the high-intensity interval training is sort of the gold standard. Um, we know that with interval training, you increase BDNF in the brain. Um, that's brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is the growth hormone for the brain. Mm. So I have everybody exercise. And sometimes it's just starting with balance and standing right. and, and doing uh, balance training every day and then starting other things. And all of it, if we don't use it, we lose it. So yeah. if we stand up and use something and do something we haven't been doing, we are actually helping with neurogenesis and, and uh, neuroplasticity. So, you know, that's where we start. But the, the gold standard is the HIT program. And I also recommend everybody do some uh, weight-bearing exercises as well as they get older for yeah. bone health. Yeah, um, yeah. and muscle. Yeah, it makes obviously. sense. Let's so. talk about another type of exercise, brain exercises. Now, people used to, you know, from, um, you know, common, common sense, say, oh, I'm going to do the crossword puzzle. Um, we know that learning languages, but our brain exercise is important. And I know there are companies that are like Lumosity and other ones that are, you know, saying, touting that they, this can help your brain function. Do you, uh, so is that brain being... exercises? Yes. So our program, honestly, you were describing our entire program. Mm. So with brain exercises, we really are focusing on brain HQ. Um, I don't, I've not trying that. to tout a company no, versus it's good to another, know. but okay. they're the, they're very well studied. And what they do is they break it down into the different areas of the brain 
And we can, with our neuropsych testing, hone in on the deficits a patient has, and I will actually tweak the program for them to focus on their areas of Interesting. weakness. Interesting. And this okay. has been scientifically proven, lots of studies. I think Harvard came out with one not terribly long ago. And and so that's that's what we've been doing, and that's what we use. So you do use um, something. I don't know how to measure the others, so I feel like that's a really important no, measurement. No, it's good to know. Let me ask you, that brings up to something else, too. Do you know what Dr. Bredesen mentions in his book, which is interesting, goes, anybody over 50 should have a cognoscopy. Now, just so my listeners know, that's not uh, short for colonoscopy, you know, where they put the tube up <laughs> your lower colon. No, this is a cognoscopy where you evaluate your brain. Do you feel like that should be part of the uh, uh, everybody's physical? You know, I'm sure they do it for the president of the United States, even though most of them now seem to be a lot older, which yeah. is even more important. But that at 50 years old, that you should have a baseline, whatever, one of these Montreal cognitive tests just to, to see where you are. Right. I do. I think that the cognoscopy is more than just even the MOCA test. And um, I definitely think so. And and even younger, quite frankly, maybe even in your 40s, it makes sense to have a baseline, I think. Um, We live in a really toxic world. Yeah, I know. Honestly, you know, Alzheimer's, um, the numbers are are really scary. So out of 318 million Americans today, 45 million will develop Alzheimer's. By 2050, it's going to be 160 million. That's a lot. It's frightening. And one of the things I want the listeners to really realize, you know, in this whole program that Dr. Bredesen came up with called the Recode, that there are a lot of supplements. You know, early in my career, I was just very much focused on, you know, eat super healthy. And that's really important. And like what you mentioned with the Keto 3 diet, which I think is great. But... I think what's scary is that because there's so many toxins in the environment that now very carefully targeted supplementation may be more important than ever. And even our food sources don't give us the supplements um, that we need. And that's one of the things that, again, in this area of functional medicine, which I know you're so aware of, and and I've been doing work in my arena, that, and then this book also puts out so clearly, you know, about even the list of the, of the supplements, pretty much everybody should be taking, you know, to combat the inflammation in the body and the different heavy metals and toxins, you know, so it's not a scare thing, but I guess really when you go into your forties or fifties and for sure sixties, these are the things that you have your best chance to stay healthy. There's actually a book I, I sometimes mention to the listeners called Fantastic Voyage. It was actually written by Ray Kurzweil with an, a Dr. Terry Grossman because Ray Kurzweil was a brilliant inventor and he had, uh, in his 40s, he was extremely frightened. His, uh, both his father and grandfather died in their early 40s or 50s from heart disease and he was following the American uh, Cardiology Association diet at the time and he saw that nothing was getting better. So being the brilliant researcher that he, he is, he started to do all the research. And he said, you know what? This is not going to work for me. And he started following the kind of diet that, you know, you were mentioning. And he also started to take supplements, you know, and, and even do IV vitamin therapies, which I believe he mentions in a book that he does still once or twice a week to detox the body, you know, to be at your healthiest. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that, That's again. That's very important. Yeah. That this, is something I really believe in. And, you know, I learned that when when I had my own. When you were sick, yeah. You know, it's a, this is an exciting time to be in medicine. Yeah. I mean, research is moving forward. You know, Dale's book is is a big eye-opener for it everyone. It really is, and yeah. it's progressed way past the book. Yeah. Um, you know, we're here doing research with ISB, the Institute for Systems Biology, really looking at now 
what is it that drives this disease with each individual person? Wow. So um, personalized, really it's, personalized. It's fascinating. Well, I'm coming down to my final question. But you know, then the final question is always the hardest question, Dr. Ross. What do we tell thousands, possibly tens of thousands of families that have a loved one with Alzheimer's? Is there hope? Is there a way to possibly bring some of these treatments, which are not so high tech, to people that might be in a medical facility that have Alzheimer's? What, what, what would you tell a family member came to you and said, my gosh, my, my father's in a you know, in a facility for Alzheimer's patients and, you know, they're feeding him ice cream every day and he sits there and watches TV every day. You know, he's maybe 70 years old. Is there something that I can do? Is there a program? What, what, what would you tell that person? I would say, uh, first of all, I would say anybody with Alzheimer's, I mean, this doesn't have to stay the way it is. Um, and, you know, everybody gets um, a response from this protocol. And depending on how uh, deeply it's followed, uh, will determine your outcome. But there is hope. And absolutely, we are working on inpatient right now. Is that true? To wow. Try to develop places with the proper diet. Right. All right. Could you have these, you you have these people in, in these nursing homes or, or these facilities? They're feeding them ice cream. And I don't know, they're not doing exercise. They just leave them there, leave them there to die, essentially. And, you know, I can't not think that. Sometimes even if somebody's even in a severe state, if they got 20, 30 percent better, 40 percent, they recognized a loved one. They did something. The amount of pleasure, you know, it it would bring to families and not to say the, you know, the savings of millions of dollars, you know, by people not having to be institutionalized. If they were better able to care for themselves at home, meaning, again, I know family members who are heartbroken, but they're like, I can't leave this person alone, not even with an aide. Nobody can take care of them. They they wander off. They could set the house on fire. That's right. You know, this is, this is you know, like what people this say. This is a big point. You know, that yeah. people often ask me, when do I decide when it's, when it's too bad and you can't help someone? Right. And I don't think there's ever a point as long as you understand what we can get out of it. We can keep people at home, even at the end stage, and let their loved ones spend the last few years with them as opposed to being an institutionalized. So there's so much to learn from this and so much that uh, I think going to come out of the research. We actually have someone from New York here working with us. She moved out to Seattle, Carrie Mills. Oh, wow. I don't know if you're familiar with Carrie, but she was a, quite a force in New York um, really? hmm, and know, know. worked for many, many years with inpatient and, oh, wow. um, and she's, she's very knowledgeable about that. And she speaks about them, feeding them ice cream and yeah. give them what they want because there's nothing we can do. Right. And now we have a completely opposite yeah. uh, approach. So it's very exciting. Well, this was an incredible podcast. Dr. Ross, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this. I think this work is so important and I think people need to know that you know there are all these breakthroughs now in the field of Alzheimer's disease and other neurogenitive diseases and that functional medicine is also playing a critical role in changing these people's lives. So again, thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, it's been really enlightening for me and um, continue to do your fantastic work. Well, thank you, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or 
at DeanMitchellMD.com. 